Hi, this is Pastor Curtis Crawford welcoming you to our podcast. At Revive Outreach Church, we're striving to revive an awareness of Christ in our communities through Christ-centered compassion, service, and evangelism. You can learn more about us online at www.reviveoc.org or on Facebook at facebook.com slash church. We hope that you enjoy this message, and God bless. This morning, I want to welcome my son, William. He's going to speak to us this morning. He's, unless he changed it up on me, uh, I know what he's talking about, and it's, it's a good one. So um, come on up, Billy. Let's all give him a hand clap. And uh, Billy, it's all yours. Thank you, Bob. Morning, guys. Good morning. So um, that could get me. It's been a while since I preached, but uh, I hope that this is beneficial. Um, Dad talked to me on Thursday night. And when I got home, and he was like, yo, I think you should preach. And so I was like, oh, really? And I'd go through my lexicon of sermons and be like, okay, what's a good one to work? And at first I thought I was going to go with one, and then changed twice. And now I'm with this one, and it settled in the last two days. And I got my manuscript and everything ready. So it's, it's really an honor to be here and talk to you guys. And I hope you guys get something out of it. Um, before I pray for us, I just kind of want to give some context about what I'm talking about. We'll be in the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 5. Um, and it's going to be Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but it doesn't happen in the Bible. So the Sermon on the Mount actually follows the events of Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus goes to be tempted by Satan in the desert for 40 days, 40 nights, with no food, no sucker, no relief. And when he's actually met with the enemy, he is faithful to, and obedient to the Lord and ends up actually affirming his identity as the Son of God by not giving into temptation, right? What I'm going to do is we're going to look at Matthew uh, and compare it with Exodus because Matthew, the gospel, is actually written so that you parallel Jesus with Moses, right? And so if you look at the 40 days and 40 nights in the desert of chapter 4, you're going to notice that Israel was also in the desert before they came to a mountain. And they also were afflicted with hunger and thirst. But whereas with Jesus, who was able to overcome, the people of Israel were given man, Right? They were given manna to sustain them in their hunger, but Jesus wasn't given bread from heaven. He was the bread from heaven, right? When the people of Israel went to a bitter spring, God made it sweet by throwing a tree. Well, Jesus was our living water. He was the fresh drink for us. There wasn't going to be a relief for him. He was the relief. And when the people of Israel were met with the Amalekites and they attacked them, God delivered them up, right? And he revealed things to Israel about his character, right? Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is my provider. But here we have Jesus, who is our banner and is our provider, right? He, by being obedient and faithful to the Father, overcomes these things. And to contrast his attitude, which was not one of grumbling, right? Jesus simply submits. The people of Israel grumble, and God has to redeem them, but Jesus is the redeemer. And so when we go... Matthew chapter 5, we're supposed to know that Jesus isn't just a second Moses. He's actually one that's greater than Moses. He's greater in authority because where the people of Israel failed in obedience, Jesus was sufficient in obedience. Where the people of Israel fell short, Jesus actually overcomes and goes above and beyond. He's not just a priest or a prophet or a teacher. He's all those things. 
But he's the son of God, and he's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. Amen. He's actually greater than Moses. And when we look to him, before we get into Matthew chapter 5, we have to understand that his words hold as much weight, if not more weight, than the old glory of the old covenant. Because here, he's talking about the new glory of the new kingdom of heaven. Right? Mm -hmm. There's a new glory. The veil is going to be revealed. And we can't appreciate what Jesus is saying and doing here until we understand that it wasn't always like that. That there was a separation between God and man. And that when you compare the old glory of the old covenant to the new glory of the new covenant, we are exceedingly blessed. So join with me in prayer. Um, that we'd be willing to hear the Lord's teaching. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all your blessings. Thank you for the people who came here to hear your word. Thank you for honoring me with having the stage. Lord, I just ask that my faith would be in my word and my ability to speak, but it would be you and your Holy Spirit, and that where I fall short, you would make up for it, and that you would bless these people through me, though I'm unperfect and unworthy to be here. And Lord, I just ask that you would give me a spirit willing to lead and teach as you would have me to do in Jesus' name. I believe the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe he will empower me to say what he needs to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. All right. Here we go. So, sorry, just kind of charge up, you know, super standing. Um, yeah. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. In Exodus, when the people got to Mount Sinai, they couldn't even approach the mountain, for it was engulfed in fire and wrath and power of God, and it was engulfed in smoke. They couldn't approach. Why couldn't they approach? Because they were separated from God by their sin. God's holy presence could not tolerate sinful human beings in it. It couldn't because at that point there was no sacrificial system yet. And there was no atonement because Christ hadn't come. There wasn't even sacrifice of animals at this point. They were just going to discover that. So when God reveals himself to the people, it's separate. It's set apart from them. He's holy. He's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And so the people cannot approach him. Oh, God sees his audience, but they'll never see him clearly. Because they're blinded by their own sin. They can never approach and be in his presence. Because they're unworthy to be in it. Oftentimes Christians feel the same way. Christians feel the same way that our sin separates us from God. That we can never approach him in intimacy. And we look at ourselves as the people of Israel had to look at themselves. Fearing that when we approach the Lord's presence we might be struck down. Because we're unworthy. But if we look at Jesus who saw the crowds. Where once the Lord came down in fire and fury, now Jesus rises up. Where once the Lord spoke with thunder, now he speaks as a humble servant. Where once the servant, Moses, had to go up and intercede for the people, now the intercessor is down here as a humble servant for the people from God. There's a parallel here. Not just that Jesus is a good dude, but that now a veil, he's, he's the in-between, he's the intercessor between God and man in a way that Moses wasn't. And he's approachable. And accessible. I believe when he looked at the crowds, he certainly saw them rising up. He'd been doing ministry in Judea, delivering the people from illness and sickness, right? But when he saw those crowds coming for him, he didn't just see them. <coughs> he saw you and me. I think he saw every people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, no matter what their background, class, or status, he saw them. And he was willing to prepare a message, a gospel that was for them. And he didn't just see it as his audience from a distant mountaintop. No, the audience could clearly see him, for he ascended the mountain where all could see him. And he wouldn't just do this once. No, at the end of his life, he would do it again. 
and be lifted up so that all the world could see him. And so we see Jesus' life is characterized not by separation from the people, but an accessibility to the people, because they can now approach him boldly as children and not as a fearful servant. We have an identity in Christ rooted in who Jesus is, not our own failings. But we can't appreciate that until we understand where we came from, where we've gone to. People of Israel didn't appreciate God until they had been delivered from Egypt and delivered from their enemies. And then they didn't appreciate them. Even then, when they were in the land, they abandoned him and turned to idolatry. And I think if they had heard Jesus' words, if they had known what it meant to be poor in spirit, they would have known that the Lord is pleased not by our failed pride, but by a humble heart. So we see that the parallel between Moses and Jesus continues through his sermon. Notice he sits down to give a discourse to the people. We haven't even gotten the word. Jesus is teaching us without even speaking. Because when he sits down, it's in a place, yes, as a traditional rabbi, but it's actually said that he sat because he intended to sit down and have a heart to heart with the people. He didn't do it arbitrarily. It wasn't like me. He's going to speak like 20 minutes. No, the Sermon on the Mount goes for three chapters. <laughs> he probably would have been there at length. If the Son of God was willing to sit down and teach us, are we willing to stand up and listen? You know, are we willing to stand there and hear what he has to say? And then it says the disciples came to him. This is a good time to mimic the disciples. New, fresh off the block. That's just how Jesus wants us when we come to him. New, fresh off the block, not knowing, but willing to learn and approach him. Because he's made himself accessible to us. Mm -hmm. This is a time to follow their example. They aren't weighed down by pride. The crowds weren't beckoned or kept at distance. But this time they can approach him intimately. And he makes it clear to us. We need to understand his accessibility. Next page. After his disciples came to him, he spoke. And he opened his mouth and he talked to him, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. Oh, the first word out of Jesus' mouth is a blessing. And every mouth word after that is also a blessing to the Christian, right? We see that when the Lord spoke, he did it. Not in a past tense, like, oh, Israel was blessed under Moses, and you do it under a future tense, uh, tense where you will be blessed. No, blessed is in the present tense. Because when Jesus says you're blessed, it's not just for a generation gone by or a generation in the future. No, it's every current generation of the church. Mm. Everybody who meets these standards, not standards, everybody who has this character, this heart posture before God, is blessed. Right, man. And it's not contingent about... The way in what circumstances of the world is contingent on God's character and Him, which doesn't change as the same from age to age, right? It's not just for a people, a possibility. It's a sure reality because Jesus said it. Notice that Jesus begins with a blessing, but the last words of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, the end of the law, are a curse. Because in the old law, the old glory was based on your obedience. See, it was a covenant where Oh, if you keep these laws, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey, I'm actually going to put you back into the chains of slavery in Egypt. And I won't deliver you this time. That's what ended up happening to Israel. Their blessing and their cursing was contingent on their behavior. But here, we see our blessing is contingent on the character of Christ in us. Isn't that interesting? You know, pretty good thing. Poor. So, okay, we talked about, like, character. But, you know, we're kind of talking about Beatitudes. What does it mean to be poor in spirit, right? The poor in spirit, well, let's just start with the word poor. 
in the Greek, it denotes a class. It's actually beggar. Blessed are the beggars in spirit. It's like, what? Beggar? Spirit? What does it mean? Like, shouldn't we want to be rich in the spirit? Shouldn't we want to have abundance, right? No, no. We can't have abundance on our own. You see, every Christian who approaches the throne of God is a beggar. He's poor. Amen. He's unable to survive on his own. He is completely dependent on what his benefactor gives him. In this case, the benefactor is Jesus Christ, giving himself on the cross. But you wouldn't really need Jesus if you didn't think you needed a savior and atonement. And unfortunately, you wouldn't be a beggar if you had your own righteousness as a currency to trade for the kingdom of heaven. Right. Right? Jesus is using an economic idea to convey a spiritual truth. And it's actually more deep than just a physical poverty. Right? God doesn't bless anyone just because they're rich or poor. These don't matter. Because that's based on the person's choices or skills and circumstances. In the case of being rich, it's based on your works, which we know don't get you in the kingdom of heaven. In the case of being poor, it might be something not your fault. But everybody who's poor in spirit knows that they lack because it's their fault. Right. So there's a duality there. A, what you're being given isn't your fault. And B, why you don't have it is your fault. You're separated from God because of your sin, not because of his character. To be poor in spirit means to recognize your poverty, your class. You're weak, you're low, you're common, you have nothing. And if you had something, if you had currency of righteousness, you wouldn't have to beg for the bread of life. What need has man with food on his table for the bread of life? We wouldn't see it. Luckily, the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of beggars, and the benefactor is King Jesus. Right. I think it's beautiful because there's a subversion of expectations. See, normally we hear a lot that God helps those who help themselves, right? It's not in the Bible. It's not anywhere in it. No, the Lord doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those who can't help themselves. Mm. Um, we expect blessed is the rich, blessed is the prosperous. Blessed are those who are abundant in character and charisma and good looks and pep in their step. But guess what? A beggar doesn't have those things. Usually he's ratty, his appearance is rotten, his character is usually dour and grim because he knows the situation in relation to other men isn't anything. And then when you put it in front of God, how much more humble should we be when we approach the throne of grace? You see, you can't receive when you believe you don't need to receive. Amen. You can't get anything from God. You're not going to take anything from him that he doesn't freely give. Mm -hmm. The idea of being poor in spirit is that the Lord is the benefactor. He gives us not enough just to sustain us, but enough to give us into the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Right? He turns beggars into princes. Yes. We compare it to the Old Testament. Once again, Israel's obedience was what was contingent in their blessings. Now, it's contingent on Christ's character on the cross. It points us to God. Not to the self, not to the works, but to God. The first blessing is beautiful because it points us to the way of the kingdom of heaven. Faith in Jesus. Jesus was intentional and made himself accessible, and he made the step, the standard, very low. You see, you'll notice each of the attitudes rises out of the one before it, like a ladder. You know, how can you mourn your sin if you don't feel a sense of loss? How can you hunger and thirst for righteousness when you feel full of your own self-righteousness? Right. How do you feel meek when you aren't humble before God? Right. None of these further blessings will come to you unless you first understand you need to be poor in spirit. Right. They're not of you. They're of heaven. Right. It's not your character. It's God's grace. It points us away from pride. The truth is that blessing and traits are not to be found in anyone who's not first demonstrated a spirit of poverty. It's not something you do. 
It's recognizing what you are. You are not a good person. Me, not a good person. But you know who is great? The Lord. It seems like so obvious to us, but oftentimes we forget. We think, well, I do ministry. I teach three men's groups. I pray. I'm a good person, right? You know, I'm, I'm pretty much Christian, and then I neglect my personal relationships and friendships, and I'm shallow and self-interested. Mm -hmm. I'm hurting because I'm selfish. And instead of being patient, loving to people, I left them. Right? It was about what I could take, not what I could give. And I can't fix it. I can't fix that. But Jesus didn't do that to me. He's redeemed me, loved me, when I didn't deserve love, even when I had nothing to do. I can't, there's nothing he can give me that I can take. There's nothing I can take from him that he can't give me. It's not based on my ultimatums or desires. It's based on his glory. All men are poor before God in righteousness, but most men are poor before God in righteousness because they're rich in pride right. and self-love. A proud man will proclaim his good attributes. The worldly man is dependent on what he controls, what he takes for himself, what he earns, his wages. How are you going to be good to a benefactor when you act entitled to what he's giving you? Why even ask? It's an entitlement. It's not a favor. It's not grace. It's a wage you've earned. Man like that goes before God, he's got another thing coming. Because he's abundant, but it's an abundance of wealth and condemnation. His storehouses and barns are full of the wrath of God against him. That's your inheritance when you work on your own. You deserve to be taken from your height of pride and thrown into the gloomy darkness and gnashes of teeth. That's the fate for a man who's not poor in spirit. You put yourself up on your own pedestal, but that pedestal is nothing to God. You'll fall in relation to it. You don't want what you've earned. What you've earned is sin and death and condemnation and judgment and separation. You've earned that. You want what you can be given, which is grace. The blessing is mighty because it's no great thing to be a beggar. It's not a high standard to set. To be honest with you, I tend to, in my personal life, set intellectual knowledge above anything else. Right? It's more important to be right than it is to be anything else. But you know what? God doesn't say you have to be smart to be in the kingdom of heaven. He says you have to be born in spirit. God doesn't say you have to be a convincing speaker and have eloquence. He doesn't say you have to be John Chrysostom, the golden tongue. No. He says be poor in spirit and ask me humbly. Anybody can be poor in spirit. They just have to acknowledge they're poor. <laughs> no, a beggar isn't to be gloried in itself, but a beggar can be used to bring glory to God. For those who could never provide for themselves, he provides. And for those who could never bless themselves, who are incapable of blessing themselves, he blesses. That's the poor in spirit. While the world may consider dependence a wretched and accursed status to the children of God. It's our greatest blessing. We have to thank God that the kingdom is for beggars like me. Because it's a category every true Christian will find themselves in. And for us, it's a blessing. And um, I told you it'd be a quick sermon. But I think it's packed full of truth. I think it applies to me, and I think that's why it's hard to get my notes right, because if I'm being honest, I haven't been very poor in spirit lately. And it, it didn't convict any of you, it convicted me, and I feel like I have to share it. 
And uh, I'm going to close in prayer. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you enjoyed it and were blessed by it. Each month we have people from all over the world who listen to the messages made available. If you've been blessed by this ministry, would you consider making a donation of any amount to help support us as we continue to reach a loss for Christ? Donations can be made online at www.reviveoc.org or by check at Revive Outreach Church, 411 Chatham Heights Road, Suite 101, Fredericksburg, Virginia, 22405. Thank you for your prayers and your continued support. May God richly bless you.